I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And if we could get one of the ushers to turn the house lights on, we'll be able to read our words together. Appreciate that. Before we begin this morning, I uh, can't help but thanking Ken Olsom for standing in at the preacher's desk last week and proclaiming God's truth to you. It's a it's a great delight and, and reassurance to me to be able to, to leave for a few days and, and entrust someone with the responsibility of, of faithfully wielding the Word of God. And so I want to thank Ken uh, for doing that as we celebrated our daughter's uh, college uh, graduation last week at Corbin University. That's for Abby. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, I want to have you stand to your feet as we read the Word of God together. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're so excited to open uh, the Word, uh, to read it, to meditate upon it, to study it, to learn from it, to allow it to transform our, our thinking, our hearts, our hands, our feet, our feet, our lips, and the way that we live our lives here in this community and in the world in which you have placed us. Lord, I pray that Uh, the Holy Spirit would come in a mighty way, even as we have had an opportunity to to worship in spirit and in truth. And we ask that that worship service would continue and that our time together would be a reflection of the, the delight, the pleasure that we have in living under the authority of your word and and carrying out the commands that you have called us to obey all for the great name's sake of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is a powerful preamble. If that sounds familiar to you, that is because this is part two. And just in case you weren't here two weeks ago, I want to give you a a little bit of the background on this. I shared, and it's changed actually, I shared with Jason several weeks ago that I would be preaching Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 7. And once I began to dig in, I realized I wasn't going to make it through verse 1. And in our first time together, indeed, we did not finish verse 1. We'll pick up on that today. Then I sent Jason. Actually, I, haven't, I don't even know if you're up to speed yet, Jason, because I haven't sent it to you yet. My next plan was to move from one week in this preamble to three weeks. Well, that has since changed as well. And I hope it doesn't scare you or surprise you or shock you, but we're going to actually spend four weeks in this preamble, in the first seven verses. And the reason I want to call your attention to that is just to make one observation. Uh, Isn't the Word of God just so rich and, and packed with truth? These are things that we want to be careful that we don't skip over. And I'm afraid that happens sometimes when we read the Word of God, when we study it, and even when we proclaim it. And so the title of the message is A Powerful Preamble, Paul's Unyielding Gospel. When we began the series two weeks ago, we opened Paul's letter to the Romans, and we got, once again, preoccupied in verse 1. And here's what we learned. We learned about Paul's unique role. And there are three observations that we made that I want to summarize briefly. First of all, in verse 1, we learned that Paul designates himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's significant. It's significant because the word servant comes from the Greek word doulos, which could be translated as slave. Martin Luther goes so far to say this, the phrase servant of Jesus Christ expresses both modesty and majesty. 
It expresses modesty because the apostle does not regard himself as a a lord, that's little L-O-R-D, or a master, as do those arrogant tyrants. It expresses majesty because he glories in his being a servant or a slave of the Lord, end quote. And so Paul will find never wavers in his passion, not only in Romans, but in the other letters that he pens. He never wavers in his passion to let his hearers know, and that includes you and I, that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Remember this, that there are only two kinds of people in this world. You're either a slave to Jesus Christ or you're a slave to sin. As a slave of Christ, Paul glories in the fact that he is truly liberated. When you come to terms with who you are in Christ, you will learn this. You will learn that obeying Jesus is the essence of freedom. Now, that that sounds counterintuitive to a typical American mindset. The typical American mind says, if I have to obey, I must not be free. But in the Christian worldview... Our standpoint as followers of Jesus, we learn something that's radically opposite to what we are accustomed to in this culture. When we obey Jesus Christ, that's when we are truly free. And so Paul is called to be a slave. He's also called, in verse 1, to be an apostle. Here we learn that Paul received a divine summons. The meaning of that word called, called to be an apostle, comes from a Greek word that means it's a specific call. It is, as I've indicated, a summons. It is a a sovereign call. It is a personal call. It is an irresistible call. Most important, it is a divine call. That is to say, when God called Paul, the only choice he had was to say, I will be your slave. That's the only choice he had, and that will have massive implications as we move through the book of Romans because Paul loves to use this word called. When we get to Romans chapter 8, we're going to learn that God calls some people to saving faith. And their only response is to say, yes, 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 and be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He specifically receives a call now in verse 1 to be an apostle. And the, the definition here is that he is an envoy. He is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The college that I attended, Multnomah University, our, our logo, or rather our mascot, was the ambassadors. And we used to sing this song, and I won't sing it for you because it would be rather scary, but we are, we're ambassadors for Christ We're ambassadors for Christ. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I love that song. And that's what all of us are, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. Third, we see in verse 1 that Paul is set apart for the gospel of God. He is literally marked out for this gospel. Now think about this. The man who was once a proponent of Judaism... The man who was once a persecutor of the church, the man who was once a perpetrator of evil, was set apart by God for the gospel of God. That's worth just stopping and meditating on. Think about that. This evil man with a stone-cold heart, A man who oversaw the murder of Christians in eternity past was set apart by a sovereign God for the sake of the gospel. This is Paul's unique role that we discovered two weeks ago. But we want to move further into our passage, and I'm going to work hard to get past verse 1. We want to move into verse 1. At the very end, I want you to notice that little phrase, gospel of God. The gospel of God. We want to eventually get to the point where we're going to uncover what Paul's unyielding gospel involves. But before we dig into that, I want to have you look with me at the phrase gospel of God because it's important. The gospel here comes from a very important little Greek word. It's euangelion. And it's a term that means good news. 
Young people, whenever you have a chance to share the gospel with your friends, the simple saving message of Jesus Christ, you're, you're sharing the good news. Business people and people in the marketplace of ideas, when you have a chance to share the gospel with your friends or your loved ones, you are merely sharing the good news. And so the gospel of God or the good news of God is that the Savior will destroy death and he will rescue his creatures from the dominion of sin. One thing that I say a lot from this pulpit is that the gospel saves us. Jesus Christ saves us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day he will save us and release us from sin's very presence. Would you raise your hand if you're looking forward to that day? Keep your hand up if you're sick and tired of sin. Yeah, just hold it up for the whole service, right? That would be very appropriate. My good friend Chris, usually when he ends a prayer, he and I, I love this about Chris. He says, keep us from sin. Well, why does he say that? My suspicion is because he's sick of it, just like the rest of you. One day we will be released from sin's very presence. It was a few days ago, about 10 days ago, I had the opportunity of officiating a a funeral for a woman who I had never met. I got a call out of the blue from a gentleman from Sacramento, and he said, uh, my my mom is, is close to the end, and I was wondering if after she dies, you would perform a graveside service. But then he went on to tell me about the special circumstances behind her, her impending death. She used to attend Nooksack Valley Baptist Church over 40 years ago. And he talked and talked and talked about how, how much this church meant to his mother. And how when his father went to be with the Lord... They contacted this church and had one of the pastors perform or officiate at that graveside service. And so what do you think my response was to him? There is there is only one response. I would be happy to officiate at that service. And so we went to the cemetery and preached the gospel and ministered to the family. And I'll never forget this this time during the service where the casket was being lowered into the ground. And I was reminded as the casket was being lowered deeper and deeper into the ground of the hope of the gospel. Have you ever wondered how an unbeliever can cope with a casket being lowered into the ground? I mean, me personally, I had never met this woman. And it it was emotional for me having not even met her. What about now an unbeliever watching a casket being lowered into the ground and having no hope whatsoever? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have hope in the gospel. This dear woman had hope because the theme of her life was following the Lord Jesus Christ. And now she presently enjoys personal fellowship and communion with her Savior. Now, if we fly the drone, if you remember last two weeks ago, we flew the drone above the book of Romans and we we saw this bird's eye picture. I want to do that just for a moment. Two weeks ago, we looked at the redemptive themes in the book of Romans. Now, as we fly the drone over the book of Romans, I want you to see this. And it's a major theme that you see developing in the book of Romans, especially in chapters one, two and three. We see that sin brought what into the world? We see it in many Disney movies. Have you ever noticed that? The curse, right? The curse. Sin brought a curse into the world. Genesis chapter 2 says, The Lord God commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, help me, you shall surely die. That's pretty clear. And so here's what happens. Adam ate and he paid the price adam ate and he died let me personalize it adam ate and we died here's what romans 5 12 says just as sin came into the world through one man that is adam and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned we say it like this in Theology circles. We are sinners by nature. That's because of Adam. 
And we are sinners by choice. Have you ever heard someone say, I know I have. Well, that's not very fair that Adam was representing me. That's not fair that he was the covenant head and made me a sinner. Well, that's why we say we are not only sinners by nature because of Adam. We are sinners by choice. We are sinners because we like to sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. The word of God says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is a scripture I read typically at every graveside service. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It was Dr. Billy Graham who recently went to be with his savior who said, quote, death is our mortal enemy. And so what do we need? We need good news. We need, we need this good news of the gospel. We need what Paul refers to in verse 1 as the gospel of God. Now, there are two questions I want to fire at the gospel of God. The first is negative and the second is positive. But let me give you those questions in advance. If you're taking notes, you can sketch these out. The negative question is, what is the gospel not? What is the gospel not? And the second question, you can probably already determine what it is. It's the positive one. What is the gospel? So first of all, what is the gospel not? This is one I I just want to shout from the rooftops. You want to climb Mount Baker and get to the top and yell this. The gospel is not a gospel of works. Yet, what do we see in our culture? All these world religions, even in so-called evangelical churches sometimes, where the gospel of works is being promoted. Here's what the gospel of works tells us. And it's, it's very subtle, and I want you to hear it. The gospel of works tells us that we are made right with God or justified by what we believe and what we do. We believe, the gospel of works says, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was raised again on the third day. So far, so good. If that's where it ended, we'd be fine. But the gospel of works says, I believe in Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection, but I'm also saved or made right before God based on the things I do. And that is what Paul calls in Galatians chapter 1, another gospel. That is a false gospel. That is a damning gospel. There's another gospel that you may be aware of that is called the gospel of positive thinking. Would you raise your hand if you've heard this one? The gospel of positive thinking. Some of you that are maybe older have heard of this. Those of you who are younger need to be aware of it. The gospel is not only not a gospel of works, it's also not a gospel of positive thinking. One of the founders of this movement was a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. Some of you have heard of him. Peel ridiculed Christianity or reduced Christianity rather to a, a checklist of behaviors that if followed would guarantee benefits. It was, as one writer says, a faith in the effects of faith, end quote. Peel said on the Donahue show, and that's I'm dating myself now, but he said this, quote, it is not necessary to be born again. You have your way to God, I have mine. I have found eternal peace in a Shinto shrine. I had to read that several times. He found his peace in a Shinto shrine? He goes on to say, I have been to Shinto shrines and God is everywhere. Christ is one of the ways. God is everywhere. My friend Tim Challey said this about Dr. Peel. Charlie said he denied the very heart of the Christian faith and replaced it with his doctrine of positive thinking, end quote. And so the gospel is not a gospel of positive thinking. Now, I want to have you brace yourself for this next one, and I'm hoping I don't get too many emails for this one. But I'm going to say it anyway because it's true. The gospel is not the gospel of Benny Hinn or Jill Osteen or any other prosperity preacher. Amen. It is not the gospel of Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn. Some of you may be aware of a gentleman. He's a young man by the name of Costi W. 
Hen. Last name Hen. His uncle is Benny Hen. This is a book that will be released on July 11th in a few short weeks. I finished it last week. Let me read the title of the book. The title is God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Costi Hen used to travel with his uncle Benny and served in his ministry. If you've ever had a chance to watch TBN and see Benny Hen on the stage and he pulls his white coat out and throws in the direction of the crowd and people fall down and speak in tongues and all these other things, Costi was right alongside ministering, ministering with his uncle Benny Hen until God got a hold of him. And God revealed to him that he was on the wrong path, as it were. Listen as Costi recounts a time when he was staying at one of the most exclusive hotels in Athens. And the stories in this book, and many of you would be interested to read this, they talk about staying in hotel rooms that cost $25,000 a night and driving these massively expensive cars and, and basically living off the back of poor people. He says this, As I peered out from the rocks that day, this is in Greece, I was staring out at the sea, the same body of water that the Apostle Paul sailed on his missionary journeys. There was just one problem. We weren't preaching the same gospel as Paul. He's in the ministry, peering out of his room that was $25,000 a night, saying, oh boy, I'm preaching My uncle is preaching a false gospel. Let me ask positively what the gospel is. A man who's who's had a great influence on my life, and some of you are familiar with him because I used his material in a previous Veritas course. His name is Peter Jones, and he says this. He says, the Bible warns us not to worship the creation, but to worship and serve only the creator. The starting point of gospel truth is that God, the creator in the three persons of the divine Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one and only God. And that all that is not God was created by him. The Christian faith maintains a separateness between God and his creation, end quote. And as we move forward into the book of Romans, chapter 1 in particular, we will see this theme that Dr. Jones refers to here. That is the theme of the creator-creature distinction, a very important distinction. And so let me say this. It is absolutely crucial that we get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. And as we get the gospel right along the way, we must reject man-made gospels. We must reject false gospels. We must reject what Paul calls another gospel. I can't help but flip over to the book of Galatians. And you don't need to go there, but listen to what Paul says in his letter to the church in Galatia. And he's so surprised when he writes these words. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That there, and not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now listen to what he says. Even if we or an angel from heaven, mark that away because we're going to come back to that in a minute. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. A question that I routinely ask people. I used to say 60 seconds. I've, I've decided in the last couple of days I'm going to move it up to 90 seconds. You say, what are you talking about? I like to ask people, can you share the gospel in 90 seconds or less? This is the question I will give if, if you have never been baptized and you're looking forward to being baptized. You can just write this down. You just know I'm going to ask you this question. Can you share the gospel in 90 seconds or less? Listen how the Apostle Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
That's the the summary of the gospel message. But let me give another summary, a way for you to share the gospel, perhaps even this week. And I can tell you that I, I have been convicted recently that I need to share the gospel more. You say, Pastor Dave, you do it every week you preach. That's fine and dandy, as my wife would say, but I need to share it more in the marketplace of ideas. And so here's a, a fourfold way that you can remember to share the gospel. And since we're talking about the gospel of God in verse 1, remember that the gospel always begins with God. It does not begin with man. There, there is one method of sharing the gospel that I learned as a, as a teenager, and it went something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't think that's the place to begin to share the gospel. We begin with God. God who is holy, holy, holy. He is the creator of the universe. Once we have unpacked who God is, then we move to man, to people. And we've learned that man and and women and boys and girls are sinners by nature and choice. And as a result, they fall under the almighty wrath of God. They fail to glorify him. Number three, Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-man. The one who died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. And here's the fourth and crucial point. Response. You tell your friend about God. You tell your friend where they are, their lost condition as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. And then you tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for sinners. The fourth step is response. And that is this. God invites all people everywhere and commands all people everywhere to turn from their sins and to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, back in Romans chapter 1, this is the gospel of God. But I want to move forward with you. And some of you are thinking, I didn't think we were ever going to get out of verse 1. And I want to have you look with me at Paul's unyielding gospel now. And there are three headings that I, I want you to see about this unyielding gospel. The first is this, and it's, it's found in verse 2, is that the unyielding gospel was promised by God. Look at verse 2. Which he, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, In the Holy Scriptures. Now, some of you know that I get very hung up with personal pronouns. You say, what's a personal pronoun? He, she, his, her. And so we have to ask here, which he promised beforehand? And that leads us to number one. That this is a promise from God the Father. How do we know it's a promise from God the Father? The context helps us to understand Paul, who has identified himself as a a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. This is a promise from God the Father. Now, the good news of the gospel was promised by God. And when we say that, we, we should automatically think God always keeps his promises. Let's do this. Just for, I don't do this very often. Would you repeat after me? God always keeps his promises. One, two, three. God always keeps his promises. Now, anyone can say that, right? Who believes it? Some of you. The people in the front row are like, what, what, what? God always keeps his promises. Whenever he makes a promise, whenever God cuts a covenant, he always fulfills it. He always holds true to his word. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. And I want you to hear something in the first couple of words in Titus and I feel very interactive today, so let's just, let's just go with it, right? Raise your hand if you hear something familiar in Titus chapter 1. You ready? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? He's over and over and over again. He's saying, look, 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 look. I'm a, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm an apostle of Jesus for the sake of... Of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, did you get that? God, who never lies, 
promised before the ages began. Now, I've, I've stated this in many different arenas, Iron Man and Veritas and likely from this pulpit. But I remember as a boy learning about the attributes of God. I was probably about six years old. I learned about the, the omniscience of God. God is all-knowing. I learned about the omnipresence of God. And I, I remember as a little kid thinking, God's, God's in Lacey and God's in China? Whoa, that is so cool. He's everywhere. And then I learned about the omnipotence of God. God is powerful. And here's the definition I heard, not just from a Sunday school teacher. I've heard it probably hundreds of times. God is powerful. He can do anything. Doesn't that sound great? The only problem is it's not true. Why isn't it true? Because Titus 1 says that God can never lie. And here's people play these these games now. They say, oh, he could lie, but he chooses not to. He could lie, but he chooses not to. Throw that in the ash heap of history. God does not have the ability to lie. It's not within his nature. And so this is a promise from God the Father. Number two, I want you to see that this is a promise that came, as Paul says in in verse two, it came beforehand. It came beforehand. How much or how, 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 how far back? How far back is beforehand? Well, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God says to Adam, and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. This is the first indication in Genesis chapter 3 that the Messiah would come, that a Redeemer would come, that a Savior would come and cover the sins of everyone who would ever believe And we're going to see as we move through Romans that this promise finds its fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, very quickly, notice that a promise came to pass in real time and space. This promise came to pass in real time and space. It's important that we make reference to that and realize this promise actually took place. This promise actually was fulfilled. Listen to Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, I'm not one to add to scripture, but you'll know what I mean here. When Paul says when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son in real time and space. And so the Apostle John could could touch Jesus. The Apostle Paul could touch Jesus. The disciples could touch Jesus. Doubting Thomas touched Jesus. And so when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The unyielding gospel was promised, Paul says in Romans 1, 2, by God. But there's something else I want you to see. It was predicted by the prophets or it was prophesied by the prophets. It was it was presented by the prophets. Now, a prophet is an individual who speaks on behalf of God. A prophet is a person who interprets the will of God. And these promises that are predicted by the prophets are set forth in the sacred scriptures. And we will look at some of these promises next week. One of the things we'll look at is in Genesis chapter 12, where God makes some important promises to Abram. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, in the Davidic covenant, those are built upon. We'll see that. But with that in mind, knowing that the promise to Abram is that he would receive some very special things. He would receive some very special things, and it would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to have you look with me at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. 
And I had originally intended to have you look at just a couple of verses, but as I reviewed this this morning, I thought the context is so, so very important. So begin with me in Zechariah's prophecy at Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Luke 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, that's promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. Look more at that next week. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and guide our feet into the way of peace. May I remind you how very important it is that we, we stay in the scriptures, that we, that we immerse ourselves in the scriptures. I want you to remember that the word of God is not from the imagination of the biblical writers. The word of God is from the hand of God. It's not a product of man's intellect. It's a promise that emerges over and over and over again in the pages of God's word. It was A.W. Pink that said there is one safeguard against error, and that is to be established in the faith for that there has to be prayerful and diligent study and a receiving with meekness the engrafted word of God. Only then are we fortified against the attacks of those who assail us. And what Pink's saying is we just need to stay in the book. We need to stay in the book to, to guard us against error. The thought struck me that there are some very serious consequences when we deviate from the word of God. And we see people doing it every day, do we not? They deviate from the word of God. And when we deviate from the word of God, it leads to three other very important elements. Deviation from the word of God leads to a distorted word of God. A distorted word of God leads, leads to deception. And once a person has been deceived, the ultimate end is final damnation. And the thought occurred to me that there is a man in the 19th century, uh, a very famous man, and probably 90% of you have heard his name. He is a man, a young man, who deviated from the word of God. In 1820, he claimed to have had a vision from God and Jesus in New York. Here's what he said. I knelt down and I began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so immediately when I was seized upon by some power which overcame me and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me and seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. But exerting all my powers to call on God and to, to deliver me at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous powers as I never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head about the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all descriptions standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now listen. He says, My object in going to inquire, inquire of the Lord is to know which of all the Christian churches was right 
that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me on the light, in light of which all the, the Christian churches was right in which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, and all their teachers were corrupt. The name of that personage was Moroni. Some of you have seen Moroni at the top of a steeple on a church. There's one in Bellevue. And it's the church that we know now as the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. The name of this young man was Joseph Smith. Here's a man who got off track, who got deceived. Here's a man that once he was deceived, he distorted scripture. Deception was involved and final damnation. It's interesting because roughly 10 years ago, as I was studying the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, I remember vividly as I researched this that there were roughly 10 million Mormons all around the world. And I decided to go back and research it some more. Over the last 10 years, that figure has grown to almost 15 million. And so here is a movement that is, it is growing and growing and growing, and it's all based on a lie. It's all based on deception. And so we need to be a people who are a people of the book, a people who love the word of God, a people who, who read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it. We are people who love the word of God. There's a third thing I want you to see finally about this unyielding gospel. If you would go back to Romans chapter 1. The third heading is that this, this unyielding gospel pointed to God's Son. And the main thing I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ here is the focus of the gospel. Jesus is the focus of the gospel. Verse 3, concerning his son, that is the father's son, Jesus, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That little word concerning, the first word translated in the ESV in verse 3 is a, just a word that means what's it about or who is it about? Who is this gospel about? It's about God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the focal point of the gospel. And then Paul does something interesting to me. He, he provides some clarifiers or qualifiers rather. First of all, he said that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. That word descended comes from a word that means to, and be careful here, it means to come into existence or to come into a new state of existence. Now, we have to be very careful with our Christology at this point. We never want to come to the place where we say, ah, this is where Jesus came into existence. That's not what the word means. Remember that Jesus Christ is eternal. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before Abraham, Jesus said, I am Indeed, he is the one who created the cosmos. So what Paul is referring to is the son of God who came through the lineage of King David. Once again, Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a second qualifier here. Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God. He's declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection. That word declared is a really cool word. It means to determine or to appoint or to designate. It also appears in Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. This is the Father who will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, whom he has designated, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And so notice that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the Father. 
Also, Jesus is declared here to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. But there's one final qualifier, and that is, this is all demonstrated by the resurrection, as we've already indicated. That word resurrection means uh, to change a state from being dead to being alive. You can all imagine that, right? A, A person who has died in the blink of an eye is now alive. It literally means he was dead and now he's standing up. And so may I remind you, and we we celebrated this a few weeks ago, that we serve a risen Savior. We serve a risen Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the final confirmation that God's promise has come to pass and all of his other promises will certainly come to pass. One of my heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welch pastor, said, When Jesus rose again, His prophecy was fulfilled. His words were verified. His claims were substantiated. This is therefore, you see, the very bedrock on which our whole gospel is erected. If there had not been a resurrection, I say, there would have been no gospel. If he remained in the grave, he never would have been the Son of God. He never would have been our Savior Here is the thing that proves to us that he is and that we are saved by him. Because you see, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first to rise from the grave. And it struck me that the disciples had learned about the promises of God. They were familiar with the promises of God. But they failed to piece it together, didn't they? Until after the resurrection. I imagine these guys... These disciples sitting around the fire, pondering the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection and his ascension. And at some point, we know that it clicked in their minds and it all made sense. Imagine being one of those guys, one of the disciples, and you just, it's like you had, you could have had a V8, one of those moments when it all clicked in. Jesus is the one who was promised beforehand through the prophets in sacred scripture. Jesus is the one who is descended from David. Jesus is the one who is declared to be the son of God and the power of the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And here's my big question is I've backloaded all the application for this moment now is have these realities clicked for you. Have these realities clicked for you? Have you come to terms with the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? See, this is Paul's unyielding gospel. It's, it's like a diamond of infinite worth. It's, it's absolutely incalculable. It's like a treasure that was promised by God, as we have seen, and predicted by the prophets and points to God's Son. But the final question I want to pose is this, is how in the world is this gospel unyielding? Well, it began with a ragtag bunch of, may I say, blue-collar fishermen, right? Guys who were just ordinary guys. That's who the gospel started with. And then what did it do? It got their attention. It changed their hearts. It changed their minds. It changed their worlds. It made its way into their hearts and minds. And then it began to make its way into the hearts of kings and queens and business people all over the world. It's renewed minds that were hostile to God. It has reformed hearts that were stone cold. It has revolutionized wills that were stubborn and defiant. And so how has the the unyielding gospel forged its way into your life? Has it renewed your mind or are you fascinated with the things of the world? How has it reformed your heart? Are you loving the things of the world or the things of of the Lord? How has it revolutionized your will? And here's really what I'm saying. I'm not asking if you're religious I'm not asking if you are a good person. I'm asking simply, do you have right standing with God because of this unyielding gospel? For every Christian this morning, may I ask, do you, do you treasure the unyielding gospel? 
Do you, do you trust the unyielding gospel? And here's the one that's been bugging me lately. Do you, do you trumpet the unyielding gospel? Is it your sheer delight and pleasure to just put your arm around your buddy and say, you know, I need to tell you something. I, I, I've been putting it off far too long. And this is what occurred to me the first time I went to Belarus. Because when, when I go to Belarus, sometimes it's, it's a little bit sketchy. I've seen people watching me. I've seen men in suits watching me. And I, oh, I watch too many spy movies. I know what these guys are doing, right? Scares the crud out of me, right? But here's what I learned. In Belarus, you can get in big trouble for sharing the gospel. You can go to jail for sharing the gospel. In America, what's the worst thing that can happen when you share the gospel? The worst thing I can think of is someone might spit in your face. Big deal, right? What, what do we have to fear? What do we have to lose? Why are we so afraid of the opinion of people? And so my, my plea with you today is let's share the gospel. Let's share this unyielding gospel, this gospel of God that is a, a precious treasure, which was promised by God and predicted by the prophets, which points us to God's son. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, thank you for helping us through these few verses, for showing us the the beauty of the gospel of God. God, even apart from my feeble attempts at an explanation, I, I pray that you would set that aside and that by the power of your spirit, that you would make the gospel of God come alive in someone's heart today. Lord, for Christians, for even Christians who have been walking with Jesus for for some time, maybe even many, many years, God, I pray that you challenge them to to trumpet the gospel, to, to treasure the gospel, that they would place it as the highest priority in their life, and that when they get a chance to share it, that they would share it. When they get a chance to trumpet it, that they would trumpet it, and they would they would share the gospel with with grace and with passion. And with humility, and we ask that you would just do a, an, an amazing work of grace here in our little community. That in the days to come, that many people would, would see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ because of the faithful efforts of the people here at Christ Fellowship. God, thank you for the gospel of God. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the final payment for our sin. Thank you for the liberty that we have in walking with Jesus and walking according to the Spirit. Help us as we walk through this book to to learn, to grow, to be challenged. Send us into the marketplace of ideas. Send us to different places in the world to wield the mighty sword of truth so that the nations would find their satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.